comes from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither caught nor hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. God, we need you. You have spoken. May we have the ears to hear as that passage ends. But the Spirit of God is communicating to this church, to us gathered together in the name of Jesus. For we are so often self-deceived and blind to our own brokenness, and it is only by the work of your Spirit, whom you have sent and promised, will convict our hearts of falsehood, of sinful behavior, ideas, and beliefs, and guide us into truth where real life is, where your life and life abundant, where your never-stopping love and life resides. By your grace and by your mercy, do what only you can do. Speak to us afresh this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, I know you just opened your eyes, but I want to invite you to close them once more. And I want you to remember a particular moment in your life. And before I tell you what moment to remember, I want you to pay special attention how you feel when you're remembering this moment. I want you to remember back to the last time you felt so sick and nauseous that you threw up. Remember how your mouth began to water, how all five of your senses were locked into what was about to happen, and then there was the act itself, extraordinarily intense, your body convulsing. I know, right? Hang in there. Your body convulsing, trying to rid itself of sickness, leaning into survival mode, just trying to get back to a level of wholeness. Okay, open your eyes. We've all been there, right? <laughs> You're like, why did we go there? Um, actually, I was there this time, you know, 4 o'clock this morning. My son came into the bathroom. I know, bless his heart, right? And first throws up on the floor. 
then the toilet. It's never the toilet first. Just to be clear, it's always the floor and then the toilet. And it's like, oh, come on, buddy. There's the target. Dad, I'm about to, ah, you know, like, oh. But we've all been there. And what's so striking about today's passage is that we are given an image of Jesus vomiting. And it's visceral. It feels sacrilegious to even say out loud because it's so earthy, it's so vulnerable. And the question we're left asking is what could be happening in our world that causes Jesus to vomit in heaven? And the surprising revelation that we see in our passage is where we're going to lean in for our time this morning. Now, for the past eight weeks, we have been walking through the first three chapters of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where the resurrected Jesus visits the apostle John, and he has seven messages for seven churches in history, seven churches there in the first century strewn across the western part of modern-day Turkey. And in these seven messages, Jesus has words of encouragement, he has words of exhortation, and words of correction. And while these seven messages are written to seven specific churches in specific time and place, they are meant to be heard across all churches, across all time. And so we too, as we've heard Jesus speak over these past seven weeks, and as we hear him speak afresh today, we are invited to hear as Jesus invites you and I and us together to be a church to the end of the world, a church expectant upon his return, a church looking forward to what Jesus will do when he comes back and he puts the world upside down or rather right side up. And when we look at the church of Laodicea, as we heard the passage read for us this morning, what we discover is that when we stop, the church can make Jesus sick. And like any good physician... We're going to do some work to understand the cause of this turmoil. We're going to do some self-diagnosis as to whether or not this is true in your life and mine, in our life as a church, and then we're going to look to a cure. So a cause, a diagnosis, and a cure. Sound good? Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to begin looking at verse 15. Now, some of the first words that Jesus has to say for the church in Laodicea is that they are neither hot nor cold. This is really important to understand in light of their geography. What do I mean? Well, the church in Laodicea, or Laodicea, the city in of itself, was along the Lycus River. And there were two other cities that were fairly proximate to Laodicea. Two cities. One, if you go up to the north, is the name by the name of Hierapolis. And it was well known for its... Jacuzzis, it's, it's, you know, it's hot springs, you know, hot tub time machine, all of that. Like all of that comes from Hierapolis. You didn't know it. But they, they were really famous for their medicinal qualities. Now, if you go southeast of Laodicea, you come to the city of Colossae, which the Apostle Paul wrote a particular letter to the church in Colossae and actually mentions the church in Laodicea. Now, the church in Colossae and the city broadly is known for these cold, fresh springs of water that were refreshing. But when you look at Laodicea, its water is notoriously disgusting. You see, the Lycus River was so muddy that it was undrinkable. And so the only source of water that the city of Laodicea had was from Hierapolis, some five miles away via aqueduct. By the time it actually arrived to Laodicea, it was lukewarm 
and something you couldn't stomach. And what Jesus is saying here is that, man, you are just like your water, church in Laodicea. I wish you were hot and, and, and helpful like Hierapolis, or at least I wish you were cold and refreshing like Colossae, but instead you're just lukewarm and your tepid faith is something I can't stomach. It's kind of like coffee. I was trying to think what's a little closer to home for me. I don't think of tepid water, but I think of tepid coffee. Like you want, you want coffee to be really hot. It's like you get cozy up next to a nice hot cup of coffee like every morning. I actually care less about the coffee and more just about the heat holding something, you know. That's nice. Or, you know, a cold brew coffee on a hot summer day right after a long run. Ugh, that's great. But if coffee is lukewarm or room temperature, gross me out the door. I'm throwing that stuff away. <laughs> you know, even when you try to put it back in the microwave, it just feels a little stale. I'm sorry. I'm a snob. It's the way it works out. Well, what Jesus is saying here is that he's given this church the taste test. And it's causing him to vomit. Now, in BDAG, so that's a, a scholarly work of four particular scholars who have done work in Koine Greek, the common language of the day in which the New Testament is written. They actually give the lexical range for the word that we see there in verse 16 when Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's really a sanitized way of saying, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So why is Jesus responding this way and calling their faith Disgusting. Look with me now at verse 17. For. Now, right, you know, Gabe, you just got one word out. Hang with me. This word for right here is the Greek word hati, okay? And it is a conjunction pointing to the cause. So Jesus said, I'm about to vomit you out, and here's the reason why. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's like, whoa, Jesus, you're piling on, right? This is getting really intense. But don't miss, don't miss this. Here's the reason. Here's the cause for Jesus' nausea. Self-sufficiency always, always makes Jesus nauseous. This self-sufficient attitude makes Jesus nauseous. And I want to be clear here, what Jesus isn't highlighting or trying to downgrade is you taking responsibility for the areas in your life that you need to accomplish. Not, not, none of that. Instead, he's talking about a DIY faith. You've watched the YouTube videos, and Jesus, I've got it, right? It's this idea that I can navigate my life, and I'll be just fine even if Jesus never comes back. I'll be just fine. I've got this. It's this arrogant posture that when Jesus comes with help to offer, we say, no, 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 no. You do, do you know who I am? Do you see what I've done? Do you see what's happened in my life and still see where I am? I've got cash in my pocket. I've got my own niche of prosperity. I'm not the someone who needs help. I'm the someone who gives help. And really, this is the posture of every Laodicean in this time period. They were the people who didn't want to receive help from anyone. They were the people who gave help. Case in point, in 60 AD, a massive earthquake riddled the lands and brought massive destruction. And the, Rome, or the, the emperor of Rome at the time said, hey, I'm willing to send you some imperial disaster relief. And they rejected it, saying, hey, 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 
we got it covered. We've got amazing medical and textile industries. We can cover our costs. And what's so astounding, what's so astounding is that their reconstruction project after the destruction of the earthquake, the city was more beautiful than it was before. So they had this self-confidence and all they had to do was look at their city for validation. You see, we don't need anyone's help. We help ourselves and that's good enough. And the Christians in Laodicea have been drinking the water. And they take this posture of self-sufficiency and try to mingle it with their faith in Jesus. You see, they, they committed one of the most common errors in faith that you and I so often commit. They looked at the stability of their lifestyle as the litmus test of their faith. We've got money, we've got good medical care, I've got material possessions, I'm independent, therefore, God must think I'm good. In the same way that every Laodicean in that city felt like they needed no help from Caesar, now the church has taken on the posture of their surrounding city without even realizing it and saying, you know what, Jesus, we don't need your help. We've got this. And what's so astounding is it may seem absolutely absurd when we hear this off of their lips, but you and I can so easily begin to think, believe, and act this way without even realizing it. I actually think this is one of the most relevant passages. This is one of the most relevant letters for the church in the United States. Because listen, we find ourselves in a country where our theme song is basically Beyonce's Me, Myself, and I, right? Some of you don't know it, look it up later, don't watch the video, trust me, okay? <laughs> I googled it and I was like, ah, should I announce this? Yeah, why not? Just don't look up the video, okay? We, we live in a culture where we don't just, we don't just see self-sufficiency as a value, we celebrate it as a virtue. We know a business is finally successful when it's reached that marker of self-sufficiency. The stories that we love to tell are what? The rags-to-riches stories that no matter the circumstances that surrounded that individual, they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, were self-sufficient, self-reliant, and look what they made of themselves. And it's usually followed with the tagline, and so can you if you just try hard enough. Even in our history as a nation, the United States did not become a country until we won our war for independence. It's in the very DNA. We love our self-sufficiency and we hold on to it as it's a very lifeblood and what it means to be human and what it means to be a Christian. Such that if we just have the three M's, right? Money, medical care, and material possessions, it's almost like God is giving us this cosmic wink. I got you because you're really great. And so we go about this self-sufficient, self-confident, self-reliant, self-assured life that we can navigate the systems of the world with enough gut that Jesus can sit on the sidelines and take care of the other people who really need his help. You know, let's think about the third world country. They really need Jesus' help. And we find ourselves in this arrogant position looking down our noses at everybody else. Beware. That kind of self-sufficient faith turns Jesus' stomach. 
And here's the tragedy. The reason it turns Jesus' stomach so much is that the moment we think, and this is so subtle, y'all, we just, we naturally do it. We start leaning into our own resources. The moment we believe that we have everything we need to carry out God's purposes in the world within ourselves, then we've missed what's at the very center of what it means to follow Jesus. Hear me, we are never more insufficient than when we try to be self-sufficient. Because Jesus is beckoning us to live beyond our capacity. Why would he do that? And I want to be very clear, this is not some diatribe against self-care. Don't hear that. Instead, Jesus has designed us. God has designed us. He has called us to do something within us, through us, way beyond than we can ever do in our own strength. And when we merely try to live within our own resources, within our own means, and set our sights limited based upon our capacity alone, we're limiting what God can do in the world through us. And it turns his stomach. You see, Jesus often puts us in positions, in relationships, in places where they will only thrive if he shows up. And so often we ask ourselves, why do I feel so inadequate? That becomes the question we raise rather than saying, God, I need you to show up because we're so used to the framework of it's got to be me alone. And if I don't, I'm failing God. And Jesus is saying, no, stop trying to build your resume. And look to your king. And so I want to do a little bit of self-diagnosis. If the cause is this self-sufficiency makes Jesus nauseous, ask yourself, are you trying to live a self-sufficient life? Or are you pursuing the life of faith? Another way of thinking about that is, in your normal occurrences of your everyday, do you often say, you know what, I've got this? Or do you find yourself saying, in the midst of prayer, God, I need you to show up here. I need you to show up here. I need you to do something because I don't have enough in me alone. I know you've got something bigger here than I can accomplish on my own. God, I need you to show up here. Another way of doing this is I want you to look back through your past. Think about your past and think, when was the last time you were desperate for Jesus to intervene? Think over your life. When was the last time you were desperate for Jesus to intervene? If you can't think of a single moment or approximate moment, a different question we might need to ask is where are you compromising? You see, scholars agree that the only reason that Laodicea and the church in Laodicea felt like they were self-sufficient was because they had compromised in their worship towards the false gods in order to avoid persecution and cost in their faith. Jesus comes with extreme words of correction here. You know where he doesn't come with words of correction? Remember, we've walked through this just as a way of review. Smyrna, where from the rest of the world they looked poor, but Jesus says, you're rich. 
Philadelphia, who has little power, but Jesus says, I'm going to do something astounding through you because both of you have chosen to not compromise to the systems of injustice and worshiping the false gods. And while it has come with great cost, you are mine and I'm going to work through you. But Laodicea, you think you've got this all together. The only way that's possible within the systems and the structures and the trade guilds of the day is through compromise. What about you? Let's do just a little bit of dissecting here with a couple case studies. Maybe there's a spot in your life you've been withholding forgiveness. You know, someone has hurt you deeply, and maybe you can muster up enough energy to avoid them. You can muster up enough energy within yourself to cut them out of your life. But forgiveness, releasing someone of doing destructive behavior, saying destructive words towards you, that takes Jesus' intervention when it really gets under the surface. Are you being tight-fisted with your finances? Sure, you can, you can feel quite controlled, You can feel really secure potentially if you leverage every dollar to build your own foundation and a wall around yourself. But when you lean into Jesus' call and our design for generosity and even, yes, a tithe to the local church, it comes with great cost and it brings you to a space of dependence. A space where you step out and say, Jesus, you're going to have to carry me. Using the language of first fruits all throughout scripture. That's what the people of God were meant to do. Is to bring the very first of their crop. Trusting that God, depending upon God to bring the rest. For that to happen, to live into truly that generous kind of life. You need Jesus to intervene and to hold you. Otherwise, you're just trying to lean into self-sufficiency afresh. When's the last time you took a day off? You know, it's always fascinating to me because I wrestle with this one extraordinarily that the one commandment out of the Ten Commandments that we just have little attention to is the Sabbath. That out of every seven-day cycle, there's one day where you just cease to do work and you rest in God. Now, to actually take a day And to have a financial cost, because what that means is you have to say no to to particular kinds of work. To have a financial cost upon your family. To also put to rest some of those desires for approval and affirmation. We can muster up enough strength to work insane hours. To never stop. To actually pursue and try to chase after those words of affirmation and get the breadcrumbs of overwork and they can feed you and barely sustain you but you'll slowly die rather than slowly grow to live we could do that in our own strength but to genuinely take a day to pause and for it to feel like rest that takes jesus intervening It takes knowing that someone else has your back and it's not you. It takes dependence. You know, earlier, it was like two weeks ago, I'm going through some pastoral coaching right now. I don't know if any of you know, each different vocations have coaches or professional development or whatever. I'm in this pastoral coaching process right now and one of the big goals, part of coaching is you kind of bring some of your goals and that person does some 
active listening and processing to point you towards those goals. And one of my big goals is to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. The people that I respect the most have this calm demeanor and actually carry about their lives in the midst of so many societal pressures to do everything. They've chosen to do a few things and they exude joy. So I said, I want to I chase, ruthlessly eliminate hurry, you know, and be someone who's calmness and peace. And he said, well, you know, what do you do when you tend to overwork? Because I said, listen, you know, I even feel like in my calendar, I am where I should be. I just don't like who I am, <laughs> where I am. You know, you know, anybody know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, it just got real. Okay, so here's the deal. Like, <laughs> I am where I should be, but I don't like who I am where I am. And I said, you know, there's the difference between a really good conversation with my son and a really bad one is five minutes. I try to make a six-minute conversation take one minute. Instead of providing the space for him to naturally respond and engage, I'm like, come on, come on, come on, come on. And then it leads to both of us frustrated. And I'm like, man, I'm home, but I'm not cultivating joy when I'm home. I feel like I'm always hurried. And he said, okay, so I want you to think, Gabe, when you, when you have overworked and you're running late to getting home, which, which, how do you fix that? I said, well, I do more work. <laughs> like I get home and I've got to hurry to catch up. I got to walk the dog, got to take out the garbage, got to make sure everybody's got their homework done and that, you know, all these different things. And I'm rushing, 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 rushing. And he goes, yeah, it's common for people who are addicted to work to think that work is the solution. I was like, ugh. <laughs> he said, I want you to try something differently. When you pull into the driveway and you've committed the sin of overwork. I was like, dude, man, you're getting real. <laughs> pull into the driveway Confess to God your sin of overwork and let him forgive you. Receive his grace, then walk in the door. Not trying to catch up, but owning your failures and moving forward with grace. Don't forget it is because he first loved us that we are able to love others. And if you're never receiving that full grace, being dependent upon his grace, you'll never be free to rest where you are. I looked him dead in the eyes and I said, this is going to be one of the most shameful things I've ever said as a pastor, but I've never thought about that. <laughs> he goes, yeah, you're addicted. That's okay. You know, you're addicted to work. And I've been trying to lean into that, but I got to be honest with you. It, it feels like it's out of my control. And I have to lean on his grace. I have to depend upon him. And I have to ask grace of my wife. I have to ask grace of my children. And I do need to properly start leaning into some better rhythms to be sure. But it's got to start with grace. Or I'm going to be just rushing into each one of those cycles. What is that for you? That's for me where I'm leaning into his dependence. Trying, rather than just trying to fix all of my problems. Laying upon his grace to heal me. To make me whole. Now, for some of us in here, you may be thinking, well, Gabe, to be honest with you, there might be a few things, but I think it's working for me, and I don't think I need Jesus to intervene right now. Um, the hard reality is, is that J Jesus' intervention isn't an if reality. It's a win reality. He may allow for a season, 
for us to pursue our sin and worship our idols and allow destruction to slowly erode our life and our joy and even allow by his mercy pain to wake us up from our malaise? It's because his discipline and his reproof, as we see in verse 19, it's because he loves us too much to let us destroy ourselves in the end. He wants what's best, even if we don't want it in the moment. And so when we're arrogant and we think we're high and we're mighty, Jesus sees us for who we are. For he is, in verse 14, the amen, right? The true and faithful witness. The beginning of God's creation, he comes with all this authority and he sees us for all that we are and he says who we really are. When we feel like we're rich, when we've got all things together, when we feel like we, we are self-sufficient in ourselves, he names us for who we actually are. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, yikes, and then naked in the midst of all of our inadequacies. And he's like, I love you still. I see you. But I still love you. And in verse 18, he says, I, I counsel you to come to me, rely upon me, depend upon me. And instead of just trying to name all the things within yourself, come and I'll give you a rich life. Now, it may or may not have material riches, but you'll be free from shame because he'll cover you from your nakedness. And he'll open your eyes, heal you from this distorted way of seeing the world to finally see the world as it ought to be, the way it is. And his love and his compassion as he makes the crooked path straight and guides you to a life with him dependent upon him rather than isolated with this faux intimacy trying to convince ourselves that God is with us when we're just trying to be with ourselves alone. You know, there's a really great Christian thinker, John Stott, who, who died back in 2011. In his farewell book, The Radical Disciple, he says, one of the most crucial distinctives of a mature Christian, what we would think is like when you get older as an adult, you, you gain your independence from your parents, right? That's, that's a sign of kind of adulthood and maturing. But what's so ironic about the Christian life is that one of the clearest distinctives of a mature Christian isn't independence, but dependence upon God and, yes, upon one another. For Jesus and his church cannot be divorced, but are intimately wed together. So what do we do? If we're doing a little bit of this diagnosis work of our own self-sufficiency and maybe these areas of our life in which we're trying to rely on our own strength rather than God, what can we do? Well, the answer is not try to dig ourselves out of our own pit. Instead, the cure is open the door. <coughs> open the door. The image given here of us and our self-sufficiency is basically like we're in this beautiful house but when you get inside, it's dark, it's dank, we're naked, we're wretched, we're poor, we're pitiable, we're dirty, and we're just curled up in the corner. And we've locked the door so that no one can get in. Because if we actually admit that we need help, what we're admitting when we say, that, hey, I need help, I can't do this, is that somehow I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy of anyone's love, so everyone should just leave me alone. 
And it's better, we can think, when we lock the door, it's better to be wanted for a false self than to be loved for who we really are. And we think that we can have this kind of intimacy without vulnerability. And Jesus is saying, no. You can't put up a facade with me. You can't try to go about your life in your own self-sufficiency. I see you for who you are. I know you're inadequate. I know that you're poor. I know that you have nothing left. And I still love you. And he's standing. The image is him knocking on the door. Us curled up in the corner, him knocking on the door. And he's not a beggar looking for bread. He's not a social worker pointing us to some other resource bank. He's the king knocking on the door, ready to clothe, ready to heal, ready to provide a feast. Come and I'll eat with you and you can eat with me. Providing a feast for his people. All that we need for life and godliness and nourishment until he returns. And the beauty of God's character is that while he stands knocking, he won't knock the door down. It's always an invitation to intimacy. But we have to open the door. So why leave him outside? This is an invitation to every single one of us, to a deeper heart of repentance, of our own self-sufficiency, and our own self-deception, that we could even be self-sufficient in ourselves. Where is that for you? Because listen, opening the door, Jesus won't stand there in the opening. He'll either be at the center of the room and transform the whole house, or he'll stay outside. And some of us, we kind of want him to open the door and say, do you see everything? Can you kind of fix it from out there? That'd be really nice. Just throw the food in. I'll get it. You know? I don't know what that was. (laughs) But Jesus is like, I'll either stay outside or I'll bring the whole meal. I'll organize the dining room furniture. You've got to let me be king in your house, not just a guest. And so I ask us this morning, for every single one of us, is Jesus at the center or is he outside? There's no neutral ground. And maybe you're here and you've been wrestling with the Christian faith. You wouldn't say you're a Christian. You've been kind of toying with, okay, who is this Jesus? What does he want for my life? One thing that is abundantly clear across the pages of Scripture is that he wants your best. And you have to be tired of trying to hold yourself up. You have to be tired and just, frankly, exhausted from trying to define yourself and find fulfillment and all these other things. And maybe you've let these other things come in the center of your life and you feel them beginning to erode. That's why you're here. Hear the good news. Jesus sees you for who you are. And he isn't daunted by who you are. He sees you for who you are, and he went to the cross for exactly who you are. And he says, I love you no matter what you bring to the table because of who I am. And he went to the cross, and he died for our sins 
and all of our wretched things that we've done, whether in public or private, the things that only you know, there is no sin so horrendous that cannot be covered by the blood. If the blood does not cover it all, it covers nothing. And he's paid our penalty, and he longs to give you a feast, to know you and to be known by him, and in this intimacy and walk with God, your creator. And here's how it starts. If you're here and you've yet to give your life to Jesus and you're ready to surrender that self-sufficiency and allow God to carry you afresh and to feed you and to nourish you, it starts with this first act of dependence, the act of prayer. A place where you admit that you are broken and cannot sustain yourself, that you are someone who has sinned against God. Then be You believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, the son of God who died on the cross for our sins and his death was sufficient and he rose again. And then you see, commit to him, to follow him in every aspect of your life because you trust that someone who would die for you, knowing who you are and knowing who he is, that wherever he's leading you, it's for your good. The Christian life is a life of dependence. It's not anyone who's good enough It's not the people who've got their lives together. No, the people of God have always been wretched and beautiful because we're beautiful because he loves us. And his grace is always sufficient to carry us through. It begins with that simple moment of prayer, admitting, believing, and committing. Now, for a large majority of us here, you've been walking with Jesus maybe for a few years or a few decades or for the most of your life. But as you think about the various categories in your life, you know there are places where you've locked Jesus out. Hey, you can have the dining room, you can have the living room, but don't go in that closet, right? Somebody comes over and that's where you throw all the junk. Don't open that door, don't open that door. You don't know, listen, listen, Jesus, I know you say you love me, but that closet, that's my junk, okay? Just don't, don't go, what is that in your life? Remember, Jesus will either be outside or he'll be in the center. And he's not content unless he's king over it all. What do you need to surrender to him? Where do you need to open the door? Because listen, church, we have the opportunity to be a people dependent upon him. And that is a beautiful place to be. We are invited to all of his riches and his joy. Not that it's easy by any stretch of the imagination. It's actually very difficult. It feels like carrying a cross. (laughs) But there's life there, real life. And to be a kind of people defined by dependence. This is what I long for us as a church. This is what I want to be as a Christian. It changes the way that we see ourselves. We can be honest about just how broken we are. We don't have to put up a facade. Because you're not called to self-sufficiency. You're not called to perfection. That's something that God does in you. We see ourselves differently. We come with a God confidence and a Christ-like humility in every sphere in which we find ourselves, whether we're gathered together in the name of Jesus or scattered across our various vocations and callings, when you're with your friends at happy hour or your family around the dinner table, wherever it is. We have a transformed view of ourselves seeing it through his lens rather than our own bootstraps. And it changes the way that we see others too. Such that when we see someone who has a robust bank account and seems like their life is fairly steady, we don't instantly assume, how are they ever going to believe in Jesus? 
Or that Jesus must be really proud of them because look at their life. No, we start to ask the question, I wonder if they do know Jesus. Because just because somebody has a steady income and a reliable lifestyle doesn't mean God is excited about what's going on in their life. And when we see someone struggling through various situations in their life, our first thought shouldn't be, man, if they would only learn. Maybe they're actually leaning into dependence upon God and God's allowing them to be in this space of learning for him to carry them through and also be an opportunity for the church to come around. It changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we see others. It changes the way we see commands in Scripture. Instead of saying, well, that's impossible. Instead, we start saying, well, yeah, it's impossible for me. I can't do this. But God, you can do it through me. Carry me by your spirit. Help me to do what is good for me and good for those around me. You always command what is good and you empower us to do what you command. So empower me. I depend upon you. When obstacles come to the things that God has called us to, we don't see them as insurmountable. We see them as opportunities for God to showcase what he's able to do in the midst of the impossible such that even our broader downtown would look at this little downtown campus and say, how is what's happening happening there? And we can stand with greater confidence and say, it's not because of us, but it's because of who is among us and who is working through us that we might be a witness in Kansas City, not of a bunch of people who got their lives right, but of people who depend upon God to do the impossible. That's who we're supposed to be. That's who we're called to be. That's what we're given in the gospel. God himself. So let's be a people who expect God to show up every day. Let's be a people who depend upon him. Let's be a people who pray. Let's do that. God, we sang about it earlier. We know you're working even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it. God, we believe that you are alive, that you are present, and that one day you will come and make all wrongs right. But help us in our unbelief. Help us to open wide the door of access to you into our lives, into every nook and cranny of our lives, and so find a deeper joy and feast with you and know what it means to be nourished by you, to be carried by you. God, help us. And I want to take just a moment right here. We're going to provide 30 seconds of silence. I want you to just open those doors to Jesus now, surrender them to him, and then we will turn to the Lord's Supper.